Are you ready for an open discussion with the best of the best and the best of what's next? Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show with Tony D'Urso. Tony will have a conversation today with one of the world's great influencers as they showcase the newest, hottest, and best trends from all walks of life. Now, here's Tony D'Urso. Welcome and thanks for dropping by to have a listen. With so many requests to get on my show, I started including short interviews on significant topics to help bring important messages to your attention. It's almost like a public service announcement or a special highlight of a new book or service. And most of all, this is all geared to today's entrepreneur and business person. I call these short interviews an insider's brief. Usually they're about 10 to 15 minutes long. All right. With that said, here are four key insider's briefs covering a wide range of topics such as working with difficult people and the importance of winning the relationship, not the argument, about the Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument to help improve your conflict handling behavior, about the Shadow Banker's Secrets, which not only helps protect your portfolio, but shows you how easy it is to become your own bank, and lastly, a new book that's all about sparking innovation in the new world. How's that for a range of special topics for us? And while we're at it, this is all about helping you and your friends turn your vision into reality. We want to help you get very successful at growing your business to a high sustainable level. And we'll help turn you into an elite entrepreneur. All right, let's get the intro music going and let's start with number one. And here's an insider's brief about working with difficult people and the importance of winning the relationship, not the argument. In fact, did you know 93% of Americans report it as a severe deficit and 68% say it's a major problem? Well, with us is Dr. Lori Morocco. She's the Assistant Dean of Instruction at a college in Colorado. She's also a professor, a certified master business strategist, a corporate leadership trainer, and a working mom of four children. She wanted it all, and she got it. So very accomplished. Hi, Lori, and welcome to the show. What an honor to have you. Thank you so much, Tony. It's so great to be here. The pleasure is is mine. And you know, there's so much to cover, and it's it is such an important topic for us entrepreneurs, business people, and so forth. So let's start here. How do we become proactive about encouraging a workplace culture of acceptance with all of the various different viewpoints that are around? That's a great question. And I think I'm a little biased because I have three degrees in communication and teach business and communication. But I really think that it comes down to communication and just engaging in respectful dialogue. And I think the intent really has to be to enhance understanding between people. So it needs to be a mutual respect. Uh, we all have, you know, diverse backgrounds and different ways of thinking. So if we can just be open-minded and engage these differences constructively, I think that um, that will really help to to solve that problem. And I appreciate that. And it's a perfect answer. And I've worked in corporate America for like 32 years. And and it's it's an easy say, statement to say. It's like, hey, let's build a house. It's one sentence, but it takes so much work. And there's different points of view. And some people are very strong upon 
or or about to better grammatically. They're very strong about how they feel and what they think is right, and they can be offended about somebody else that has is different. So, perhaps you could help us with some tips. To how can we live peacefully? How can we accept despite all of these differences, especially if we don't agree with them? Right. So this is where uh, I think it comes down to to civil discourse, and I often talk about. Um, a brave space versus a safe space. Uh, And what that means is that when we engage in civil discourse with the ability or the understanding to to engage in better communication, um, what we don't want to do is engage in um, bullying or name-calling or threats. It's not even about being polite necessarily. Uh, Civil discourse is more about just being supportive and respectful and tolerant and being deliberative in our communication. So you know, saying things, starting with I language. I often talk about an assertion message where you start with I language. I mean, we all know that your feelings can't be wrong. People can't dispute how you feel about something. So I feel whatever, frustrated or whatever when you, and then whatever the person does, because. So what that does is it's a very strategic approach to communication um, it, it puts people off the defensive because when we start with you, 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 you're this, you're wrong, you're not right, people get very defensive about that. And that's sort of when they put up a wall to communication and then nothing good is coming out of that. So being respectful, um, being a good listener, being an active listener and resisting the temptation to speak. So sitting back, taking it all in, hearing what the person has to say active listening, and then possibly uh, sharing how you feel about the situation or ask for clarity or more under that you need more understanding. I like that. And it reminds me of something I read not too long ago. And I seems I've actually read it multiple times in different places. We have two ears, one mouth. So you should listen twice as much as when as speaking. And it seems to make good sense because you know, and I know people, they're, they're bold, they're upfront, especially some people say, especially from the, not the middle, more of the, more towards the East coast. I grew up in Chicago, you know, it is Chicago and we're, we like to be upfront. And if you go further East, we're like, no, you need to do this this way. And that way is not right. And, and, and we feel a little pushy without even thinking that we're a bully, but we right. want the people in the workplace to we want we want to persuade them or or make them follow our means or our method how we are and mm-hmm. and it all we all have to we have to craft our discourse our speech and how we do this how do we do this mm-hmm. how how can we improve on this yeah so i think you're right being a role model and a mentor for the communication that you want to see in your organization or your department. So if somebody's a bully and aggressive and they don't listen, that sort of sets the standards for what office communication looks like. So I often say, um, first of all, everybody should just take a break. When conversations start to escalate or emotions start to escalate, because that's a big part of civil discourse and respectful communication, we all need to just step back Um, stay calm, stay composed, be deliberate with our communication, Um, you know, have, have a point to the conversation. I go 
into conversations and in meetings. And it's really just a monologue. I don't, I don't get to participate because the other person is doing all the talking. And so I just sit there and I don't get to say anything. That's not what we're asking for, but staying calm, practicing active listening, showing empathy for, for the other person. Um, why are they, ha- why are they yelling? Why are they being aggressive? What's going on in their real lives that is causing them to act this, this way. So maybe there's more to it. Maybe they're not just a jerk. Maybe they're having some difficulties in their personal life. So I've actually said to people, um, wow, you seem really um, frustrated today. Is is there anything that I can help you with? Or is there anything that you need to talk about? And then it's almost like a relief, like, well, actually, now that you mention it, you know, my car broke down, my teenager's rebelling. And then you get to the heart of why the person is acting that way. So the empathy is huge. Um, The respectful language, avoiding personal attacks on people, also very, very important. Um, Again, using those I statements, I feel or I think when you, not the other way around. Don't start with you, start with I. And really just respecting boundaries. So setting boundaries and not letting people talk to us in a certain manner. Um, And just taking a time out if you need it. It takes work. It's it's not so easy, especially the one thing I've realized in my corporate years is you get to work mm-hmm. with people, you you become friends with them, but you right. still have to watch what you say. And I could never get that in my brain. Being an Italian, I like to talk. You yeah. kind of have to watch that because it it's it's the bigger picture is the relationship. It's a work relationship where one thing that goes wrong can, can like a domino affect other mm-hmm. things. Cause, and, and we speak different with our family. We speak different with our workers and, mm-hmm. and, and what I'm getting from our conversation here, which I, I, I wish I would have known this 30 years ago. It's <laughs> the relationship, Lori. That's the whole thing. It's not like, Hey, I won the argument. No, like I said in the intro here, it's, we have this relationship and that's, what's more important. That's exactly what, what's more important. Um, yeah, so so I talk about winning the relationship, not the argument. I don't always have to be right. I'd like to think that I'm always right or I want to be right. But in reality, what's more important to me? This trivial conversation that we're having, you know, it could be as simple as who's the better sports team. Um, I don't always have to be right. But I care about my relationship with that person, whether it's my coworker um, my children, my parents, that is what is important to me. So sometimes stepping back, taking a breath and realizing I don't always have to be right is I think really the the key of preserving the relationships. And if you're working with these people every single day, nobody wants a contentious working relationship. We want to have a, a relationship with our coworkers where we enjoy being with them and working with them. That brings up a great point. It, the, of having a conversation that's that's beneficial and not necessarily that could engage into a conflict. Of course, I, I avoid items or topics that I believe are controversial because they don't I don't think belong in a show for or for entrepreneurs and business people. And I try to sidestep it because truthfully speaking, my opinion doesn't matter. I'm bringing someone onto the show. It's all about what they've done. And that's, what's important. Not me. I'm not important, but, it, but, it, yeah. <laughs> but in terms of speaking to our, 
employees, friends. We want to put conversation in a more positive manner that won't lead into a conflict. I think if we could get some points and understand that, that might help a lot. Right. So I think it's okay. Uh, we, again, in terms of always having to be right or winning the argument, it's okay to say, I don't know. Um, I don't know, but I, I'm curious about that. So I do this a lot when I'm, when I'm teaching and if a student asked me a question back in my younger years of being a professor, I would thought, well, I have to have all the answers. No, I, I don't need to have all the answers. So now I say, that's a really great, great question. Let me look into that. Let me get back to you on that because I want to give you a thoughtful response. So taking that pause and then re-engaging the person, again, we setting the boundaries around topics that are going to cause conflict. Some people like to poke the bear. They want to engage in conflict. Most people that I find don't really want conflict. It's uncomfortable. Um, so if a topic is uncomfortable, I would just put up my wall and say, I'm not very comfortable um, talking about that. That's not really a, a topic that I that I care to discuss. Um, and really acknowledging others' viewpoints. So again, even though I may not agree with the person, I should acknowledge them and let them be heard. Because a lot of times when people are upset or their emotions are running high, they just want to be heard. So if you give them that space to voice whatever's bothering them or upsetting them, usually the conflict will diffuse. It's just when we railroad people and sort of bully them out of, um, no, you, that's not right. That's not true. That's not what really happened. Letting Pausing, letting people say what they want to say and then addressing it in a constructive manner. So I don't think it's okay to just sort of, um, you know, stop people from talking, let them talk hear what they have to say, have an open mind, and then address it and say, how can we work collectively on this? How can we resolve this problem? And I think that goes a long way in, um, you know, civil discourse and, and workplace and relationships in general. It does. And while you're saying this, I'm thinking there's almost like two ways to be mm -hmm. when having a conversation. There's just boom, off the cuff. Hey, just spit it out, say it like it is. And then there's the, wait, think about it, you know, think about what I'm going to say is what, not like to sit and think and be silent for a long time, but, but to have this self-regulation aspect of ensuring that what you say is going to be taken right, because we've all run it, run into it. You know, when I type an answer, for example, to an email, give an example, I'll just write a, write an example, uh, write a, write a message. And before I send it, I always stop and look at it again, take their point of view. And sometimes I find, boy, the way I use these words, they're, they can be taken the wrong way. And But we're not used to, I think, having this self-reflection type step. Um, mm. Can you help guide us a little bit, perhaps, so that we're not silent forever when you ask a question? I'm like pondering, like, hmm, what am, but, but I have got a mechanism in place where I just don't blah, say something that I don't like or that we wouldn't like later. Right. And you bring up a good point because, well, my PhD is in rhetorical theory and it's all about constructing an argument, not an argument in terms of conflict, but a discussion point and being very thoughtful and careful of the words that we use. So I'm the same way before I send an email, especially if I'm angry, I stop and I'll walk away from my computer and you're right. You come back and read it. And you, again, here's where the empathy comes in. So looking at it, 
from the other person's perspective. It's a, if it's a voicemail or a text, they can't see us smiling. Um, they don't know if we're angry, if we're joking. So much of communication gets lost in social media or, um, you know, just emails in general. So walking away, like you said, that's a great point. Sort of walking away, reflecting, calming down, and then coming back to it, rewording it if you have to, so that it's, again, respectful communication. Yes, and so the the pause. (laughs) Um, People get very nervous when people stop talking, right? So if you've ever been in a conversation with somebody and they stop talking, silence is very, very powerful. Pausing for too long makes people uncomfortable. But I think saying, you know, I need to think about that for a minute. That lets the other person know that you're trying to formulate a thoughtful response and you're not just going to say the first thing that comes to your mind. If we only have a certain amount of time to communicate with somebody, we want it to be purposeful and thoughtful and respectful with an intended goal. And so I think it's okay to to say that. I need a break. Let me think about this. I was interviewing somebody the other day and wow, this person would take a good minute and it was getting nerve wracking because he wasn't speaking, but really he was thinking and he was just formulating. Some people process at different speeds. Some people are very quick. Some people take a longer time. So knowing that that's okay and normal, I think it is fine in terms of reflection and thoughtfulness. I like that. Great answer. Thank you so much. And where can we find out more about this? Well, you could visit me at my website, which is lauriemorocco.com. And you can also find me on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Sounds great. And that's L-A-U-R-I-E-M-O-R-O-C-O.com. Did I get that right? Correct. Dr. Lori Morocco, thank you so much for coming on the show and giving us, this is a huge topic, but you've opened the door and you've already given me some insights. I like that a lot. I want to thank you so much. Thank you. Really appreciate being on the show. Number two, and here's an insider's brief about mastering conflict management that goes beyond theory. In today's world where differences, diversity, and discord prevail, conflict management has become an essential skill for individuals, teams, and societies. You know what I'm talking about. Well, here we speak with Dr. Ralph Kilman. He's a conflict management expert and co-creator of the renowned Thomas Kilman Conflict Mode Instrument, aka TKI, and it's the world's best-selling conflict management tool. This is very exciting. Hi, Ralph, and welcome to the Tony Dierso Show. Hi, Tony. It's a delight to be here. Thank you so much. It's my honor to have you to talk about this. this is very important subject here. The world is definitely more and more contentious. You have to mind your peace and cues everywhere. I'd like to start from the top, please. What made you work on solving conflicts? Well, I did my undergraduate and master's at Carnegie Mellon in the 1960s, and there were a couple of professors working in the area of conflict, uh, but I didn't pay much attention to it. It wasn't a major topic. It's not what was discussed in the news. Uh, It was something that was discussed perhaps in a sociology class or political science or psychology, but it was not mainstream. But then I went for my doctorate at UCLA, and that is where I met Ken Thomas, 
who was finishing up his dissertation on conflict management. And I was working on instrument development. I like the idea of how do you measure these very obvious and yet very obtuse and very abstract concepts and make them meaningful for people? How do you measure that and give a number to it so it means something? And basically, Ken and I got together to develop this instrument, the TKI, and making use of all his knowledge about conflict management, what I knew about instrument development. It was a perfect combination. And we also got along very well. In fact, I've told people, even if we didn't work on that instrument and conflict management, we still would have been friends. We just clicked. You dealt with your conflicts if you had any. (laughs) Right. But I should say that at that time, it was not a popular topic. And uh, Ken and I, I have to say, we did not anticipate how the world would change. The globalization, the global village, the deregulation the political, the social media that connects everything in the world instantaneously, that shrinks the world. And because of diversity in the workplace, across the board, there is more and more conflict. And what's clear, if we don't learn how to manage conflict, we can't move forward and we remain stymied in what we're doing and we're stuck in the past. That was not the case perhaps in the early 70s, but the world has changed dramatically. Can you tell us about the TKI conflict model? I'd be happy to. It's based on two dimensions. One is called assertiveness, and that's on the y-axis that goes up and down. And assertiveness is the extent to which I try to get my needs and concerns met in a conflict situation. On the the x-axis, which goes from left to right, is cooperativeness. And that's the extent to which I try to get your needs and concerns met in the situation. So this combination of trying to get my needs and concerns met versus getting your needs and concerns met create the conflict management space, and they define five conflict modes, five basic approaches whenever there's conflict. Let me get my brain around this. There's five conflict modes, but there's two skill sets around this? There are two dimensions that define those five conflict modes. So, for example, competing. That is high assertiveness, low cooperativeness. I'm trying to get my needs met. I'm not at all concerned about your needs. I'm asserting myself what we call competing. The opposite of that we call accommodating. I'm not at all concerned about getting my needs met. I want to help you get your needs met. In the middle is compromising, where we flip a coin or take a middle ground so you get some of your needs met, not all of them. And I get some of my needs met, but not all of them. But at least it's a workable solution, at least for the time being. Then there's avoiding, which is low on both assertiveness and cooperativeness. I'm neither trying to get my needs met or your needs met. Now, there's good times to avoid. Uh, When tension is high, when stress is high, people can't talk, people can't think. Cool off, get back together another time. Or if you need to collect more information or talk to a few more people before you make a final decision, that's when avoiding is good. But if you're avoiding when something is very important to you and the other person, well, then over time, you're not getting your needs met. And you're either going to disengage from the situation or you're simply going to leave. And the fifth conflict mode, which seems like the ideal, but it only works well under a very specific set of conditions, that's collaborating. And collaborating is high on assertiveness and high on cooperativeness. It's coming up with an approach where you get all your needs met 
and I get all my needs met. Wow, that sounds great, but how do we do that? Well, you have to have trust. You have to take the time to have a discussion. You have to share what you really need or want. You have to communicate effectively. You have to actively listen. It has to be a very important issue. You wouldn't want to spend time on collaborating if it was a trivial issue. So those conditions have to be there for there to be this magical collaboration where everyone gets their needs met. But because there's more and more conflict, we are constantly making choices about, well, how do I approach this? How are my needs versus your needs? How do we do this? And that's the skill set that we need to develop. Why you're saying this in the different modes or models, I'm thinking in the in the corporate world where I've worked men, a, a good many years, several decades, one one way, one way, one method was I don't want to argue with it, is what I'm thinking, you know, or the person's thinking. I'll just walk away. I'll just leave it at that. Don't want to argue. You know, it gets stressful, the situation is like, I don't want to argue. And you see this where it looks like it's going to be contentious and somebody just walks away or just doesn't say anything more. It's not necessarily the best, the best. And there is still that stress. I'd like to know, what advice do you have to help with? Well, I have found, to first put this in a larger perspective, that many organizations today have an avoiding culture. And it's supported by the reward system. So if an employee challenges his or her boss again and again, you're going to hear about it in your performance review. Because there's norms like don't make waves, don't rock the boat, don't step on the toes of senior management, which results in an avoiding culture. In fact, the instrument that Ken and I developed, the TKI, measures your tendency to use those five modes. And when we do that with people in organizations, we find that people on top of the hierarchy, when we ask them, how do you resolve conflict in this organization, they come out higher on the assertiveness modes, compromising, competing, collaborating. But as you move down the hierarchy, more and more avoiding and accommodating because they have learned it's not helpful to stick your neck out, take a chance and tell people what you really feel. It's easier, as you suggested, to walk away. That may be easier, but that affects long-term success. You can't solve important problems by walking away from the discussion. In fact, senior management, when they see the results of the TKI up and down the hierarchy, they say, my goodness, we're paying people all these salaries and we're not getting their input. They're not telling us what they really feel. We're not taking advantage of their wisdom, expertise, and their talent. So when you have a situation where it's an important thing like strategic direction, like how we organize this work, how we work on this project, if there's conflict, if we walk away from it, we won't be able to achieve anything. So we have to learn how to change the culture. In fact, the major principle I've learned in the last 50 years is that 80% of what behavior is observed in an organization is driven by the surrounding systems, culture, strategy, the reward system, structure. Only 20% is based on individuals' personal preferences to behave a certain way. We don't realize the power of the system, but what happens is if you replaced all the people in the organization with other people, in three months, you'd have the same conflict, the same conversations, the same approach, because it's the systems that put people in conflict. Like department, one department values quality. Another one is worried about cost. Another one is worried about this, is worried about that. They're in conflict. Well, we have to resolve that. And that comes from the organization. You put different people in those departmental jobs, and they'll have the same conflicts year after year. 
So it's mostly in the system. And that's why a lot of my work on organizational change is if we want better conflict management, we can't just do individual training in an isolated workshop and then throw people back into an organization which says, don't take chances by really expressing yourself. Keep to yourself, walk away from trouble. So we have to do more than try to help individuals learn about conflict. We have to change the surrounding systems so they can use the different conflict modes as needed. Totally get you on all of this. Now, we're all entrepreneurs and business people here. We're listening into this show. Can you tell us about some of the tools that you have that can help us in the working world to deal with all of this? Well, the main tool, and that's the reason why Ken Thomas and I developed the, uh, the TKI, is in roughly about 15, 20 minutes, it's a self-report, you're asked to respond to various items according to how you usually behave in conflict situation. And then the results are you find out which conflict modes you might be using too much or too little as compared to a large normative sample. So you take the TKI and you may find out, my goodness, I'm really high on competing and I'm very low on accommodating. I never thought about that. That must mean that I'm concerned about my needs and I don't really work well and have empathy on what other people need. Maybe that's why I haven't been able to resolve things and why everyone doesn't want to work with me all the time. Or you may find out I'm highest on avoiding and lowest on competing. I just learned over years not to assert myself. It's just not worth it. But once you see the results, you say, is this effective for me in an organization, let alone in my personal life and my family? So often you find out you're high or you're very high on one or two modes and very low on the others. And it's saying you're only relying on the same mode again and again. Like if you're high on competing and low on everything else, you can play a game of Monopoly. You have to win. You fight to the end to win. It's just a game, but you have to win. Once you get your TKI results, you say, my goodness, I have five alternatives. That broadens my repertoire. I have more choices to behave. I can be more effective because each conflict mode works best in a certain situation. So the first thing you learn with the TKI is what are your limitations? Maybe you've developed a habit of only using one or two modes and not even realizing that there's other ways to approach conflict. And then you practice. We have role-playing exercises where someone who's high on competing can practice avoiding by saying, I'm not ready to make a decision now. Uh, let's wait or let's have further discussion next week and let's try again, as opposed to saying, you need to do it the way I want you to do it, period. So you practice and there's many role-playing exercises where people can play out the different roles of using the different modes and then they find out they get comfortable avoiding, accommodating, compromising, competing, collaborating. Now, the next skill is how do you read the situation to determine which mode is best? That's very important. So you don't say, well, I'll randomly pick one of the five. I can do all five, so I'll randomly pick it. No, this is not a random process. You can't be effective that way. So you learn what are the conditions when competing works best. For example, when you know you're right, which is, of course, dangerous sometimes, but it's or the issue is very important to you, it's not as important to the other person. And you explain why your needs are so important on this and you help for other people to accommodate you. That's when competing can work well. Or when it's a thing, a problem with, which is not that important to you, but it is to your employees and you want to develop them. So you let them make the decision and you let them learn the consequences. Or compromising. You don't have a lot of time. The issue is of moderate importance. 
Let's just take a middle ground position and move on. Or collaborating, as I mentioned before, when it's really important to both people and you have the conditions for an effective dialogue, there's trust, there's good communication, there's good listening. If it's really important, let's take the time to use collaborating so we can satisfy this issue. So you read the situation and then you say which mode would work best. I should add there's a third skill, and that is how do you enact each mode? I can compete by saying, if you don't do this, I'll never support you for another project again. That's one way to compete. Another way to compete is, let me share with you what I'm thinking so I can show you why this is so important to me, and maybe you can help me and take my position. And when something is more important to you than it is to me, I'll support you. That's competing, but it comes across very differently. Or take avoiding. It's avoiding when I say, you know, I'm sick and tired of this discussion. I don't want to be here anymore. You stand up, you walk out of the room, you slam the door. That's avoiding. You withdrew from the situation. No one's getting their needs met. But you can also avoid by saying, you know, I need more time. I want to think about it this week. I want to talk about it with some of my colleagues. Can we have another meeting next week? Now, that's also avoiding, but it's done with empathy, with compassion, with care. So what you realize as you learn conflict management is, one, knowing that you've got five conflict modes available to you all time. You learn how to read the situation, given these needs and where people are and what is the culture and the reward system, the organization, what's the best mode? And then third, can I enact it in a way that draws people together and does not make them defensive and push them away? This is very detailed, very thorough. I really appreciate this. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking of my time and tenure in the in the corporate world and how I would use some of this. And as I understand that so far here, it's it's a self-assessment sheet. We answer it, we fill it out. Now this helps us learn more about ourselves and how to deal with it. Or does it do we then go on a process after that? Can you give us a, a simple overview of that assessment? Yes. Well, first, the standard instructions for the TKI is simply this. Consider situations in which your needs differ from another person. How do you usually respond? We don't specify a situation. You're asked to, in essence, average your typical approach to conflict management across all the situations in your life. But what we learned is to change the instructions. And we sometimes have people in organizations take two TKIs. The first TKI is with the instructions in my group, in my department, in this organization, in the workplace. How do I usually respond when my wishes are different from those of other members? The second TKI is much like the general one. It says in all other situations in my life outside this organization, how do I usually respond when my wishes differ from others? The difference between the two shows the impact of the organizational culture, strategy, structure, and reward system. So why would it be that you would respond to conflict very differently across all the other situations in your life, but you do it differently in the organization? And as I mentioned, people tend, particularly as you go down the hierarchy, to do more avoiding and accommodating in organizations. And yet on their TKI results, when they talk about all other situations, they're very assertive. So these are assertive people who come into the organization and have learned the hard way, typically, to play it safe because they don't want my real opinions here. 
I'm going to stay out of trouble. But when I'm out of the organization, I could be my usual self and assert myself. That's valuable information. And I show this information to senior management. In fact, I show two organization charts, and each box on the organization chart has the TKI model and the results. So the modes in high have a big circle. The modes in low have a low circle. And then you show the senior group what the chart looks like with the response to in this organization versus how people are behaving outside the organization. Two different results. And senior management says, so these people are asserting themselves outside and sharing what they believe. But when they come inside this organization, they shut down. Why is that? We got to do something about it. Without that diagnostic information, uh, senior management might simply say, you know, there, there's nothing much to be done. We don't have a problem in conflict. But once you see the results and you see these different TKI outcomes, you say, we have a big problem. We're not using the wisdom, talent, and expertise of our members. We're squelching them. We have to do something about this. So that is valuable information that we can get from the TKI. I love it. This is very, very good. Listeners can find out more at KillmanDiagnostics.com. That's K-I-L-M-A-N-N Diagnostics.com. Is that right? That's right. You got it, Tony. All right. Please head on over there. Check it out. And once again, Dr. Kilman, I really appreciate you giving us this information, coming on the show and telling us about this. Very interesting. We've all run into this. Now we have a better tool or a very good tool to, uh, to deal with it. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Number three, and here's an insider's brief about protecting your portfolio from market crises while generating above market return. We're going to talk about how to create capital and get ready, become your own bank. We speak with Ben Summer, founder and managing director of Adagio Group, who has a new book out that's called The Shadow Banker's Secrets. I want to know all about that. Hi, Ben. Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Appreciate that. Good to be here. Ben, this is, uh, has really caught my eye when I when I saw that you uh, would like to do an interview. It was like, be our own bank. So let me just straight up, this is this was the first thing on my interest list. to be, Now, to become our own bank, it seems to be, first of all, a no-brainer that we need to think and operate like a financial institution, yet we can be our own bank. Can you kind of unravel that for us? Sure. So I loosely define banking as the function of creating capital, right? And without going off on a tangent, I think most people are probably aware of how the Federal Reserve works and fractional reserve banking at this point. Now, 10 years ago, it was a novel idea, but I think most people are aware of that. Um, so what we're focusing on here is how to do that outside of the regulatory constraints that are imposed upon traditional depository institutions. In other words, commercial banks, right? And so what may not be obvious is this, every other financial institution that's non-depository creates capital. It's very similar, if not perfectly analogously to commercial banks. Um, there's just an additional step of monetizing that capital uh, that can also be addressed. But in effect, you're ultimately creating money out of thin air in a perfectly analogous manner to how commercial banks do so. All right, I'm getting that in my brain and I'm thinking here we're going to we're going to get into the world of investing. Not all of us in the audience here are into 
doing high level investments. I've I've been there, done that, and I have my own my own history on that. But one thing is there's a lot of variables that determine the quality and uh, of it and so forth. And I'd like to get your take on that. Yeah, that's actually a really good segue uh, from where we started, right? So I talked about creating capital, but then there's, if you're a shadow bank, which I should define first, right? So a shadow bank is any financial institution that is non-depository. So Wells Fargo, Bank of America, where you go and open a checking account, those are depository institutions, those are commercial banks. Investment banks like Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, those believe it or not, fall into the category of shadow bank. Shadow bank has kind of a, an ominous feel and connotation, um, but it, it really is just a, a catch-all term to describe, like I said, every financial firm that's non-depository, and they create capital. Now, when you create capital as a non-depository bank, you have to monetize it, right? And so, first of all, I guess the question to ask would be, what, what is this capital we're talking about? And these are shares in a fund. So if anybody's ever run a fund or participate in a fund or is aware of the fund world, right? When you raise money within a fund, you're selling ownership interests in that fund. Think of them like shares, stocks, right? Well, when you're doing that, you're converting that capital that you created, the share in the company, and you're trading it for dollars. That's monetizing the share. That's monetizing the, the, the uh, financial instrument, the financial capital. So the question becomes, all right, well, what gives that value, right? So ultimately, it's just a contract. You drop a piece of paper, and then you sell shares via this piece of paper. There's nothing really concrete that's changing hands. And the answer to that question is the fundamental question that governs, governs all of investing, which is, what is the risk? What is the return? And then what are the liquidity characteristics? How long do I have to hold this thing before I can sell it to the market? And this becomes particularly germane to the entrepreneurial crowd who may not be interested and probably should not be interested in investing in things outside of their own business. If you are running a good business and you're serious about it, you should definitely believe in it. And if you do, all of your time, energy, and resources should go into that. That being said, the, this idea becomes very germane in the sense of, say you're running one business in one sector or one industry and you want to grow. How do you do that? Well, one way of doing it is the way private equity firms do. And, and private equity is one brand of shadow banking where they will create this idea. We have a strategy. We're going to go buy construction companies. And they'll say, all right, they'll draw these documents up. And they're going to say, all right, we're going to go buy construction companies and you're going to give us money to go do it. Right? So we're just going to say, give us money. Here's this piece of paper in exchange, hundreds of millions of dollars. And we'll go by construction companies. Well, if you want to grow within your sector and annex other firms by effectively your competition, you can do the same thing. You can create a fund and then take the money that you raise in that fund and then go by and scale that way through accreting other businesses. But again, this goes back to the question I haven't yet answered, which is, well, how do you do that? What, what gives that paper value? Because it really only is paper. And the answer to that is, what is the probability of loss weighted by the expected degree of that loss on the money that I put into this fund, the money that I used to buy this financial instrument, the money that was used to monetize that financial asset. And this is a mathematically driven endeavor. 
But that is just like, but but it's and it's the math is kind of complex. But it's what drives the entire gambling industry, right? So the entire gambling industry is predicated on the idea of understanding these probabilities. Like little old ladies know that you go to the slot machine and know what the probabilities are. You go play blackjack, people know. You go to the roulette wheel, people know. The same. The math is more complex in financial markets, but it exists. It's new. It was only developed as recently as 2014. But the point is, you can measure the risk, the return, and the liquidity of the strategy of an asset manager. There are a lot of variables that have to be taken into account. But when you do this, it's the measured risk and return that give that piece of paper value. And the reason I elaborated on that is because I think this is probably an area where, uh, again, entrepreneurs and business owners and maybe executives want to go out on their own can leverage this expertise to go out, raise money, and take their one business and use a fund potentially to buy many more to grow in that way, if that makes sense. That makes very good sense. So the the lowest common denominator here, in other words, the takeaway for for the audience, entrepreneurs, business people, is we can raise funds and invest to invest in our business as well as buy other businesses in our in our category or whatever we determine. Perhaps I didn't quite get it, but you could fill in the blanks a little bit more on that. No, I, I, I think you nailed it. I think you probably get it better better than you're giving yourself credit for. So um, when I say creating, becoming your own bank, creating capital out of thin air, um, just, just really briefly, the process is you, you create these things called offering documents, right? They're, whatever, they're, I'm, I won't go into the details. You these documents, right? And these documents are the legalese that are the concrete representation, as concrete as it gets, of this abstract idea of, I'm going to go buy other businesses, give me money for it, Right. Um, and so you put the, and it's a business entity, either a limited partnership or an LLC. And these docs govern how this limited partnership or LLC run, like any other business. You go out and you sell interest in this business entity, just like you might sell interest in your own firm. But the difference is you're not diluting yourself. You're diluting an external entity that you manage, right? So you're, you, you don't have, you're not subject to the traditional J curve of the, you know, the MBA, um, you know, private equity play. You, you're controlling your own capital. And that's that's what I mean by becoming your own bank. You're literally creating your own money. You just drop a piece of paper, you create a new entity, you say, this idea needs $500 million. Arbitrary, $500 million. Now you just go create a bunch of contracts that you trade for literally $500 million. And your ability to get that $500 million in exchange for just the paper representing the idea and the business entity is the measured risk return and liquidity. And then you just take that money and you can do whatever you're allowed to within the confines of that, those documents, which to, again, with your audience should be probably to buy businesses in their own industry and or sector. Does that, that kind of fill the blanks? And you don't need a series seven license to, to do this. That's correct. So series seven is a brokerage license. Um, ultimately, if you, you're managing over $150 million, that's not real estate, you may potentially need a series 65, but you're exempt up to $150 million, do not require licensing. Um, there's some other minor regulatory considerations, but it, it's really uh, sort of the wild west in terms of the ability to, again, form capital. I love it. Let's, let's set this up and raise money for my podcast. I'll buy other podcasts and I'll go up to $150 million. I'm in. Let's do it. This is absolutely amazing. So now I've I've done fundraising before in a sort uh, without having a license by just directing people to what I considered was a good investment 
and talking about what I got out of it. And, and uh, it was all legal and proper and uh, people would, you know, move along. And so, so I, I've learned some of this stuff is what I'm trying to say, sure. but there's pitfalls, you know, usually in, in investing or, or raising capital, you go to friends, you go to family, you go to people, you know, but you know, when I did it, I didn't know anybody that had a lot of money, you know, it's, it's work. So really quick, just another minute here. How do we, how, how can we scale on something like this? That's a really good question. Glad you asked it. It's going to be tough to answer in a minute, but I'll do my best. Right. So actually, that's actually what our business is, is investment bank. On, our, on the buy side, we actually recruit asset managers who can generate exceedingly good performance that have tapped out friends and family. They might manage $90 million, $200 million, $5 million, and they engage us to raise a billion dollars plus. And it's shocking. And it goes back to this definition of risk that I won't re, re, restate. But if you ask a thousand financial professionals, what is risk? They've got no idea, right? It's a, it's a very esoteric expertise that's really gated behind the most sophisticated financial firms, right? Think of like Blue Owl, you know, the, the inner workings of Blackstone, for example, right? And so the way to determine investment quality is to measure the probability of loss weighted by the potential degree of that loss in exactly the same way you do intuitively when you play blackjack or roulette, right? Now, deep conversation for another time, but that is the only consideration that matters. Now, when you can do that and you can use those numbers to design and engineer financial products, where financial engineering comes in, much more complicated, right? Now you can engage the institutional space as a peer, command their respect, and start raising money at scale. So there, I'd say there is a pretty substantial chasm expertise that's required to jump from friends and family to institutional money. Um, but it's not impossible as most people think. It just requires a very high level of quantitative expertise. Amazing. Well, listeners, you got to get the book, The Shadow Banker's Secrets. It's on, it's on Amazon. And I'm going to have a link to the book in the show notes. And to find out more about Ben and what they do, here's, a, here's an easy link. And it's a little unusual. So pay attention. It's adagio.capital. That's A-D-A-G-I-O dot capital. It's not a dot com. Just type that in and it will take you to, to Ben's site, Adagio Capital, and tell you all about it. Ben, I want to do another interview. There's more to learn about this. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and telling us about this. Thank you, Tony. It's been a pleasure. Number four, and here's an insider's brief about a new book that will help you spark creativity for yourself and those you work with. It's called Creative Together by Stephen Kowalski, PhD. And he's a leading voice in the global movement for conscious creativity. And he's a longtime practitioner of Stanford University's creativity in business approach. Hi, Stephen. Welcome to the Tony D'Urso Show. Hey, Tony. Great to be here. Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the show, and uh, I'm looking forward to talking about your book, Creative Together. It's a really interesting title, and I'm wondering if you could give us perhaps a short synopsis of the book and what benefits we can get from it. Super, yeah. Um, Creative Together really promotes a new story of what creativity is, what activates it, and how we can become more effective at creating together. One of the reasons why the tagline uh, sort of uh, sparking innovation in the new world of work is um, in, in the new world of work we're all in, we need to get creative together. Going it alone won't work anymore. 
And uh, when we do create together, we bring some of our old myths and ideas about what creativity is and a story about ourselves that might actually be too small for us. Um, so Creative Together really seeks to expand our story of ourself as a creator, change that story, and then help us get more effective at creating together. We, uh, we, we talk about that in three different adventures. The first adventure is kind of an inner journey to, as I said, rewrite that story. And the second adventure is about getting more creative together out in the world, learning about your creative style, how to navigate what I call the swamp, the organizational dynamics of the system. And then the third adventure is really about the springboard into daily practice and action. Stephen, I'm going to ask you some questions about that. And just as a little um, disclosure, I've been in corporate America probably, I think it's 32 years, if, if I calculated correctly on the calendar. And I just have to say off the bat, we always felt we were creative. We, we, that was the one thing we didn't feel, at least I, for all those years. We never felt we, we lacked creativity. But I know you have a different focus, a different facet of it. And I'm not trying to be too silly or even facetious or anything. Just it was always we had too much creativity. At least that's how it was back then. And I'm talking the preponderance of those years were before all the high tech that we have today. So, mm. so we, but we, but there was never a lack of, oh, let's this idea and this idea. And, you know, some of these ideas, um, such as, you know, build a house, it's, it takes one sentence. <laughs> It's one sentence to say, but it could take a year to do. So that's kind of why I'm saying it. So I, I want my uh, our listeners to pay attention because and f uh, on what we're going to focus on, on the creativity and why this is so important. And if I may, perhaps let's start with the big shots, the leaders. What kind of advice would you have for the leaders in terms of this so we can better understand what's in your book? Yeah, I, leaders really need to double down on purpose. So purpose is actually what activates our creativity. Some meaningful reason why the status quo is not good enough, we have to change. Sometimes those purposes come from outside of us. Sometimes they come from inside of us, out of our own desires and motivations. Leaders need to double down on that purpose. They have an opportunity to engineer the conditions that will spark innovation. And it's important to, to clarify that purpose uh, to ensure that people really know what the constraints are, uh, what the opportunities are, uh, because what happens is when we have that purpose, then we bounce back and forth between possibilities and constraints. And those possibilities and constraints must always be seen in relationship to that purpose. So leaders, leaders bring the weather into the room. They have the opportunity to, uh, to clarify that purpose and ensure that it's meaningful for people. That's maybe one, one, one piece. Oh, I really like that because I, I, it's as if I can analyze 32 years in the corporate world in a, in a nanosecond. I'm thinking, oh, yeah, a lot of them missed out on that because sometimes you'll get randomness, if I may call use that word, of orders and things to do, but they're not necessarily on the purpose. Yet, yet yes. we know today, is it, is it because we're smarter? We know today how important purpose is. It's it's what the gasoline in the car when you're driving down the freeway. Yes, and it is the thing that starts our creativity activated. It ignites our creativity. And purposes can be about so many different things. Uh, they can be about discovery. They can be about execution and imp implementation. 
They could be about scaling or navigating obstacles, inventing new things. There's so many different purposes that might might be out there for leaders to 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 work with. Uh, the key is it's meaningful. The more meaningful it is, the more personal people feel connected to it, the more durable it will be when we hit those obstacles and constraints as we will when we're on a creative quest. Very good points on that. Very good. I really appreciate you. you, you you've got it down. All right. So that was leaders. And now there's another f- facet, if I can, or approach to leadership, the teams. Yes, we work with leadership teams a lot. I mean, anyone pioneering or, or innovating in a social system like a corporation or even a nonprofit is going to be pre- presenting ideas uh, to leadership teams, leadership teams. And so leadership teams have, with the leader, the, uh, the important uh, need to, to provide focus. Uh, creativity here, creativity not here. And this is maybe related to what you were saying earlier about what, what some might call a thousand flowers blooming, creativity everywhere. Sometimes we say there's too much creativity. Actually, the problem is that leaders and leadership teams haven't helped people focus that creativity uh, on the purposes, uh, on the challenges that are most meaningful, on the priorities. So an, a great example of that is uh, one, uh, one department I work with, and their challenge was increase customer satisfaction while we're lowering the cost of delivering services. So there's, there's creative tension in that, right? You, you don't know exactly how to do that right away. It's a call to action. It's a call for creativity to get activated. So number one, uh, leaders and leadership teams need to focus people's creativity Second, I think it's really critical uh, to pay attention to how we empower others. You know, this is not about abdicating leadership. Empowerment is not about abdicating leadership, but it has to come with accountability. So leaders, leadership teams, clarify the scope, clarify the constraints, help people understand what they might run into, and then uh, provide the appropriate degrees of freedom and the decision-making where that makes the most sense, right? So these are these are critical. And remember, uh, people are coming to the leadership team with some of the products and the artifacts and the, you know, the output of their creative activity, right? Let's be appreciative. Let's be frank and respectful. Let's hear them and, and, uh, and work with them. Let's stand together with folks who are creating out in the system. Stephen, I can tell that you have it very well researched out and you're right on point. And I so wish we had you way back then as a consultant for some of the companies I worked at because they had their flaws. They didn't have this refined understanding and sense on, on leadership and creativity as, as, as we have it today as is in your book. So I really like that. Very, very needed. And that's a hint to anyone out there. That's a consultant. Get the book. And uh, you've got a job instantly in the corporate world. And the last thing I want to take, because there's a lot of there's a lot to cover in your book, I want to I want to just take a look at the point of view uh, in regards to innovators in an organizational context. Yeah, maybe one thing I'll say right off the bat is uh, sometimes, and this applies to leadership teams as well. Uh, sometimes we think the team creates the purpose, but actually the purpose should create the team. And when the purpose creates the team, that's when we spark innovation. That's when we spark creativity. And by the way, innovation is just a type of creative result. It's a, it's a, it's a creative result that yields value. That's why a thousand flowers blooming uh, is, is such a problem sometimes because it doesn't necessarily yield value. It's not directed. 
into the strategic priorities of the of the of the company, right? So, uh, you know, it's really important to to double down on purpose and to um, to really shape the team through the purpose. Uh, so that's one that I'll say. Uh, another one is uh, you are going to be meeting resistance. Resistance management, you know, we talk about change management, we talk about uh, stakeholder management. We don't really talk that much about resistance management and pioneering or bringing forward, trying to change the status quo in an organizational system that's designed to protect itself from change. Uh, we need to get better at resistance management. And some, sometimes people resist because they have a, a critique of the ideas. That's great. That makes us better. Sometimes people resist because what you're doing is kind of new and untested and it might be a little risky to align with you. So they, they're, they're not ready to support you. Uh, we can turn those folks into allies, right? The, the kind of resistance that's really tough is when what we're doing is actually impinging or, or, uh, kind of working uh, against something that someone else is really invested in. And they might resist us for political reasons or for self, uh, for ego reasons, right? So understanding what the, what the types of resistance and learning how to work around that is really critical. And I'll say one other thing, um, as I said earlier, creating together is where the strength lies. You know, our network is our net worth. And it's really important to get better at creating together. And that means we have to understand our own style, our own creative style, and how that might inhibit or accelerate the work we're really uh, passionate about. Great points. I really, really appreciate it. And for you out there, you're an entrepreneur. You may be a solopreneur, just one person. And you, you may or may not think, what does this have to do with me? But come on, you know this. You have subs, you have people you hire, you have affiliates, you have people that work with you. That's all part of your team, even if they're not, you know, if you don't, even if you don't pay them weekly, somehow they're covered, they're on the team. And this is very, very important for you to check out. You, If you go to stephenkowalski.com, go to the book uh, link, and you'll see mm -hmm. uh, various ways to get the book. Now that's Stephen, S-T-E-V-E-N. K-O-W-A-L-S-K-I.com, stephenkowalski.com. Get the book, Creative Together. I really like it. I think we've said it all. We've said it enough to spark creativity in, yeah. in wanting to get the book and learn more about it. Super, Tony. Thank you so much. Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you. Hey, thanks for hanging out while I featured four key insiders briefs to help you in business and in life. Each one has something important that can impact you, your business, and your relationship. I hope you enjoyed these and that you learned some gems, and please share them with a few friends too, all right? It's friends helping friends, which is so vital to help get things on track today. All right, use this and let's help you move on your journey to success. Thanks, and remember, just take action. Success awaits those who persevere and remain steadfast despite the odds. Sow good seeds, do good deeds, and join me on the next episode of The Tony D'Erso Show. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of The Tony D'Erso Show with Tony D'Erso. 
Be sure to tune in again next Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now, go enjoy the weekend.